What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golliver with The Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Rob Mahoney of Sports Illustrated. Rob, it was a buffet of goodness, as Channing Fry would say, uh, this weekend. I mean, Damian Lillard goes for 60. D'Angelo Russell goes off for 50-plus. Even Wiggins got a 40-point night. But to me, out of all these crazy stats, these crazy storylines over the last 72 hours, the one that popped maybe more than any other was Pascal Siakam and the Toronto Raptors. Now, the NBA announced on Monday that Siakam uh, was the Eastern Conference Player of the Week. He earned it. Eye-popping stats. He played exceptionally well uh, in a win over the Los Angeles Lakers, who had been riding a seven-game winning streak um, into their game. On Sunday night at Staples Center, Siakam was everywhere. A transition dunk, a transition layup kind of sealed the game in the fourth quarter. He's, you know, using his length to bother everybody on the Lakers, including their superstar players. It was quite the moment for him. And you really won't believe this, uh, Rob. We got a bunch of questions from the Toronto Termites uh, over the last 24 hours about the state of their franchise. So we're going to dive into those in a second. But first, we're going to get a comment from the young homie Paolo Ugetti from The Ringer. Paolo tweeted uh, on Sunday night during that Lakers-Raptors game. He wrote, Watching Siakam live is slowly becoming more and more like watching Giannis. And then a couple of minutes later, he followed that up with, I tweeted this specifically to get Ben Golliver riled up, and it worked. Mission accomplished. Now, the missing link from that story, Rob, was that I accused him of blasphemy in his DMs. You know, I don't think that anyone should be comparing any other player to Giannis at this point. I think it's completely unnecessary and out of bounds. Uh, And frankly, Paolo, unprofessional by you. Uh, But Rob, I'm curious for your take because, you know, it's actually not that wild. I mean, Siakam has taken this crazy leap forward again this season. Do you see the Giannis comparisons? Is there somebody else that Pascal reminds you of? And just, you know, what's the state of the Pascal Union in your minds uh, as we enter uh, 2020 here coming up pretty soon? Well, it's hard because no one, to your point, is really like Giannis. He kind of is in a category by himself. But, you know, he's not really a unicorn, but whatever mythical creature he is, Pascal Siakam is probably the, the, you know, the nearest to it. If he's like a griffin, then Pascal Siakam is the closest thing to a griffin. I mean, he he has so many of kind of the overlapping attributes, the body type, the handle for a big, which is really unlocks a lot of his game, the defense, just that that motor that takes him all over the court, that plays at such a high pace and high energy all the time. You can kind of see where Paolo's coming from, although, you know, so long as Giannis Inc. stand, we will not abide it. Yeah, I mean, I think the playmaking part that we talked about with Giannis last week is probably the difference uh, at this point, just the command of the offense. But what I love is just the downhill nature, right? Trying to get the rim in half-court situations and being able to do it with the dribbling ability uh, that you mentioned. I don't understand how these big guys learn how to handle the basketball like during their NBA careers, right? Because there's so many wings out there who we see that are just like one-dimensional on offense. If they try to dribble, they panic, they freak out. I mean, a guy like Danny Green, you know, plays for the Lakers and uh, used to play for the Raptors kind of comes to mind. It really makes no sense that a player with Danny Green's body type wouldn't be able to dribble in the NBA and a player like Pascal would be able to do like unleashing crossovers that are like, you know, the ball travels like eight feet from his left hand all the way over towards his right hand because his wingspan's so long. Uh, And yet here we are. Pascal has officially, I'm going to christen him as one of my top five players uh, in the NBA. Now, there's a couple things that we should touch back on. Last year, we got a question from Raptors fans. Hey, would you rather have Pascal or Draymond. I was ardently uh, in the Draymond camp uh, at that point. I think I flipped over to the Pascal camp. Now that could be a little bit prisoner of the moment stuff because Draymond's been hurt, but Pascal has made that type of improvement. He deserves credit for it. Uh, To me, in the Eastern Conference, is he a top three player? If you're drafting, would you rather have Pascal over everybody besides Giannis and Embiid? I think I'm at that point. Like if it's Pascal versus Kyrie, to start a franchise going forward, I'm taking Pascal. Is that crazy in your mind, or or is that how you have him sort of on this hierarchy? I don't think it's crazy, especially when you chart that he could get even better than this. And I think one of the most exciting things about him, especially relative to other younger or developing players, is he's a guy who you don't have to worry about the defense. You know, he's already starting from a place where he's at or near kind of an all-NBA defense level. 
and then he's you know his his offensive game is starting to come along even beyond being a most improved player you know and i think it it really does serve to your point that you're making about the handle and just how unusual it is for guys this size and, and how crazy it is that he's had this trajectory but the the key to scalability in the nba the key to having an elastic skill set and really kind of a higher developmental curve is that handle and I mean, if you want to try to pinpoint which guys from year to year stand to get better, it's the ones who are working on that, who have the potential to improve it and who are really dedicating their time to it. I think Pascal is, you know, a great example of that in terms of a guy who can run pick and roll, who can initiate an offense, who can, in the absence of Kyle Lowry, kind of be your point guard at times, which is something that two or three years ago would have seemed crazy for him just when he, you know, was just kind of an out of control energy player, a change of pace guy, a guy you could bring off the bench to really give your team a jolt. And now he's the guy you bring in to kind of steady your team. So I think when you look at him from that perspective in, you know, an absolute value kind of conversation, he is tremendously valuable to an organization as, as a guy who's, you know, not only raising your ceiling, but raising your floor. And I think the Draymond point of comparison is, is really apt. And it's one thing where, you know, we talk about this a lot when we were doing top 100. Like, what do you, what does this player need around him to be successful? And I think we're seeing with Draymond this year that Draymond needs the shooters, obviously, guys like Steph and Clay to be healthy, you know, to be around him so that he can feed and set up. But also, he needs a finishing big. He needs wings who can cut. He needs other smart players around him. I think you could make the argument for as good as the Raptors supporting cast is that Pascal just needs less in order to be a successful NBA player. You know, this just came to me, but should we be giving Kevin Durant some of the credit for the influence on these big guys learning how to handle and getting comfortable comfortable handling? I mean, I do feel like he was a trailblazer to a certain degree, um, you know, on that front. I remember, you know, coming into the pre-draft process, I think some people were like almost intimidated or like blind to this idea that a player of his stature could be so effective on the perimeter with the ball in his hands. I mean, I think there was concerns, you know, about turnovers and would he get bullied off the ball? Would he be able to kind of get to his spots? I mean, these weren't major concerns. Obviously, he went second in the draft and he was viewed as a kind of a generational type talent, you know, coming in. But I think those were maybe some of the knocks. And now, you know, we're seeing guys like Towns, Davis, Siakam, Giannis. I mean, all these guys handling uh, to an advanced degree. Uh, where, you know, players of that size just kind of really didn't um, in, in the same way, whether it's pick and rolls or just kind of creating off the dribble uh, prior to Kevin Durant, or am I am I blanking on somebody before KD who was in that same class? Well, I think the difference is, you know, we had seen guys like LeBron, obviously, or Magic Johnson, these like bigger guys who are point guards. I think the Kevin Durant comparison works because it's a guy who's not like an unbelievable passer. It's just a guy who is so big, and quick enough and athletic enough and who tightened up his handle enough that he could become more of a playmaker. And I think that's kind of the mold for these types of players. And it was it was something that struck me too. You know, Zach Lowe had John Collins on his podcast, I think it was over the summer. And Collins, you know, when, when Zach was asking kind of who he was modeling his game after, where, where he kind of wanted his game to go, he brought up Giannis and trying to be more of a complete Giannis-like player. And it's one of those things where in the moment I'm thinking, John, like you're really good. You, there are lots of ways you could impact a game. That's probably not the one that I would choose if I'm kind of charting his developmental path. But I probably would have said the same thing about Pascal Siakam in terms of what I have pegged him as a ball handler, as an ISO threat, as a guy you are dumping the ball to in the post when you need to score. Probably not, but he's proven to be that guy. And I think that's why the sky's the limit for so many of these bigs and kind of combo forwards, where if you have that ability to leverage a matchup, wherever that is, if that's your size, if that's your speed, you know, you're able to blow past other bigs, whatever it may be, if you can tighten up that hand even just a little bit, I think it can take you a pretty long way. Yeah, I mean, not only Collins and, and Siaka might raise your eyebrows with that idea. I mean, imagine trying to tell a younger Giannis about the Giannis he was going to become or like trying to pitch that as a coaching staff. I mean, that was no guarantee either. You know, I, I can understand why there would have been pushback and say, all right, man, like, you know, just try to focus on finishing, you know, try to keep things simple, uh, you know, use your one dribble power moves. Uh, to get your offense rather than, you know, the, this be uh, beast that's been unleashed here over these last couple of years. I also just think there's still a difference between Magic and LeBron at 6'9 and KD at basically seven feet, right? I mean, visually, there's a difference. Wingspan, there's a difference. Um, I do think that, uh, like, you know, basketball, like old school traditional thinking would say, okay, well, you know, smaller guys are going to be able to get under KD, bother him off the dribble. There's it's just going to be a high risk of turnover. Uh, you know, he's got it. The ball has to travel so far to get back up towards his waist. It's, you know, easy to pick his pocket. And, um, 
I think that he developed a lot you know, in terms of his handle during his OKC tenure. So it wasn't like he came to the NBA completely ready to go from that standpoint. But I do think we, um, you know, we probably undersell his influence, uh, you know, in this, you know, in this aspect of the modern NBA. So real quick, a question from Tarim. Uh, he writes in from Montreal. He says, I'm relatively new to the NBA. Hey, welcome, man. Congratulations. But after seeing Siakam block LeBron and break Anthony Davis's ankles in a win without Lowry, I'd like to ask you guys if ranking Siakam in the top 20 is too high. Um, so this kind of gets back to what I was saying in terms of Eastern Conference talents, right? I mean, I think you can't move him outside the top five in the East at this point. You know, in the locker room last night, his teammates are calling him, you know, Spicy P. They're calling him All-Star. They're really ragging on him. You know, he's got his Hawaiian shirt with the button open uh, at the top, and they're all kind of clowning on him. I mean, it's clear that they view him as kind of their guy at this point. I mean, kind of the the chosen one for the Raptors, and I think he's lived up to that. Toronto's off to an excellent start considering their injury issues. Uh, and, you know, as I mentioned earlier, he's already been nominated uh, and received you know, player of the week honors. So he's on track to that all-star level. But do you think, you know, overall top 20, is that too ambitious uh, or is Siakam in that mix? Well, I mean, coming into the season for top 100, I rated him at number 24. And I think it's safe to say that that was underrating him based on his performance so far. And maybe maybe by the end of the year, we think of this differently. Maybe he levels out in some way. Maybe defenses start adapting to him a little bit. I kind of think this is who he is. I think He's, he's a guy who's very hard to match up with. There really aren't that many players who are quick enough to keep up with him, especially if he shoots the way he does, or has so far at least. I think he has so many weapons that he can work with, and he's such a smart and intuitive player with and without the ball. I think, I think we are talking about a top 20 talent. Yeah, I, I do too. I think he's in the teens at this point, uh, You know, probably in that 15 to 20 range. Um, and I don't think that's being, uh, you know, too, uh, you know, too crazy based off the small sample size, or whatever you want to say, like, I think you had him in the right range coming in, you know, exercising a de- degree of caution, but I penciled him as an, uh, in as an all-star, uh, you know, this summer, uh, with really no hesitation, you know, one big storyline Toronto's front office has been trying to push is this idea that basically Siakam got to go to graduate school, uh, you know, at the feet of Kawhi Leonard last year. He got to basically soak in all the knowledge that Kawhi had about his approach, about how he handled playoff games, how he handled late game moments, how he kept himself steady and poised, uh, you know, despite, you know, a pretty emotional ride and and some really tough opponents, uh, you know, during the postseason. I think you can see some of that, you know, rubbing off on Pascal for sure. Uh, I didn't know quite how well he would handle the leadership duties. But like I said, he's got that kind of infectious joy where his teammates are already kind of rallying around him. And then he plays so consistently hard that I think it raises the bar for his teammates, you know, and and that's something we could say about Giannis and and a lot of the other star players in the NBA. I mean, that that kind of thing matters. Even Westbrook in Oklahoma City, that was probably his great gift was uh, the effort level that basically kept everybody invested, right? And he's cut from that same mold. uh, And I think uh, it's really paying dividends. And so for him, taking the mantle from Kawhi, I don't think it's been as drastic of a transition as maybe some people feared. Uh, And that brings me to a question, uh, another one from Montreal. Matt writes, I understand Kawhi is unequivocally the number one reason the Raps won the NBA title last season, but I think the team's ability to develop players internally has not been appreciated nearly enough. You've got Pascal, Fred Van Vliet, OG Ananobi. Uh, on top of all that, it looked like the sky was falling the other night when Serge Ibaka and Kyle Lowry went down in the same game, but they bounced right back and beat the Lakers, and a guy like Chris Boucher hopped off the bench with 15 points, two steals, and three blocks, and played with crazy energy on both sides of the floor. Uh, with a potential front court of the future and OG, Siakam, and Boucher all developed internally, I think the staff in this organization does not get nearly enough credit for the job they do. So, Matt, I think you're you're raising a, a very interesting point. Um, I think, you know, pump the brakes a little bit on Boucher, all right? We're not going to try to judge people on their best day or their worst day. I think certainly that was an incredible best day uh, for Boucher. But let's, let's uh, see how, you know, like the next month plays out before you go crowning him. I think both Pascal and OG Ananobi have looked, you know, very impressive and strong to start. They're classic Masai Ujiri type players. I think, you know, his type at this point is very obvious. He wants, you know, maximum effort, length, athleticism. Uh, he isn't so concerned necessarily about polish. 
Um, and I think that that has served them really well. Uh, you know, he's got a lot of workers, um, you know, clearly on that roster. And those guys have, uh, you know, developed quite a bit here over these last couple of years. Rob, I'm curious, maybe I got caught up in that win last night. That was just a really fun team to watch. Uh, when you're comparing like this version of the Raptors to like the Kawhi Raptors to even going back to the DeMar DeRozan Raptors, am I crazy to say that this one is the most fun of those three versions to watch? I don't think I don't think it's crazy at all. And some of it is if you look around the league and all the teams we kind of expected to bank on their continuity this season to say, okay, this is a group of players who just knows how to play together. I think the Raptors are the one team who that's really rang true for. If you watch, I mean, from a ball movement perspective, they go around the horn as much as anybody else. They really find each other really effectively. And, you know, to, to kind of revisit the premise of this question, a lot of that is development. A lot of that is OG Ananobi being more than whether he can make or miss a corner three. It's about him attacking a closeout, finding the next guy. It's about, uh, you know, Eric Kareen had a great piece about this in The Athletic, about this team kind of wanting to play like Marc Gasol in a lot of ways. And, you know, Mark certainly has his limits. There are nights where it's really frustrating that he doesn't shoot more or that he's not more assertive. But the way he reads the game, the way he's able to find his teammates and strike, you know, kind of the perfect balance of playmaking within an offense, I think is something that the Raptors really endeavor to do and something that they've been really successful with so far. Yeah, I think for me, this is really just on pure aesthetic grounds. You know, watching the DeRozan teams, it's no great secret. I did not enjoy watching those teams play. I understand the craft and the footwork involved in him creating his shots. But to me, they were just not good shots. They were never going to be winning shots. And the style of play held back that team's capabilities, especially come the playoffs. So, you know, he might be going for 35 or 40 points. But to me, it wasn't empty, but it wasn't meaningful. And therefore, it wasn't very enjoyable. I look at the Kawhi team, I mean, their playoff run was incredibly uh, entertaining to watch. So, you know, full credit there. But I think Nick Nurse made a comment this week that basically he he didn't think Kawhi was necessarily pushing himself that hard um, during the regular season, maybe coasting a little bit or preserving energy. And I think that's a completely fair thing to say. Kawhi is doing something very similar with the Clippers where the other night, you know, he's coasting for three quarters and he turned it on in the final six minutes and ultimately like – they just needed six good minutes from Kawhi to win a game against the Blazers, and he gave them exactly those six good minutes, and that was the game, right? Um, so I think that can be a slightly frustrating experience too because you don't necessarily feel like a team is maxing out its capabilities. Now, of course, that changed in the playoffs, um, and like I said, that team was you know, a pretty remarkable journey uh, throughout the postseason. Uh, but when I'm looking at like this team as a regular season commodity, I mean, they go hard, they play super fast, they get, you know, end-to-end in transition so quickly with their athletes, especially Siakam. Um, there's highlight-level plays. I mean, I was joking to the Raptors, uh, you know, web guy who was sitting next to me at the game last, and I was like, bro, you're going to have like a 12-minute highlight reel from this game. <laughs> like, this isn't, this isn't going to be a 45-second thing. Like, this is going to be an extended play, like double album of highlights, uh, you know, from Siakam and Boucher and all these other guys. So... I don't know. I am I hate to say this because the termites are going to hold this against me for all time, Rob, but I'm enamored with this group. I, I really like them. Uh, you know, this is probably jinxing them and they'll probably be on the back-to-back and get smoked by the Clippers tonight. Uh, so sorry, Toronto, in advance. But this has been, uh, to me, the most entertaining version of the Raptors uh, that I can kind of really remember uh, from this modern era. Doesn't mean they're going to be the most successful, Uh, But I think that they're going to be an annoying team uh, for opponents to deal with in the postseason. Uh, And I do hope they can kind of get these injury issues out of the way early uh, so we can see what they can do uh, come playoff time. Yeah, I mean, we're we're already on record as saying that this was going to be a surprisingly good Raptors team coming into this season. I think the only thing that's really been kind of out of character in any sense or beyond our expectations is that is just how fun they've been to watch, how great Siakam and Van Vliet and Ananobi, how great these guys have been as stories and as players, especially in the light of kind of needing to redefine a lot of what they do. Hey guys, what's up? This is Ben Golliver with a message from Mattress Firm. The only thing better than watching your team win is a perfect nap. And Mattress Firm's President's Day sale lets you get a king mattress for a queen price or a queen mattress for a twin price for savings of up to $600. And you can take home a free adjustable base with a qualifying purchase. But you have to hurry. The clock is ticking on this sale. It's ending soon. Isn't it time you saved and slept like a champion? Shop now. Mattressfirm.com. 
mattressfirm.com for the President's Day sale. No doubt. All right, let's switch gears here to the guy I mentioned earlier, Damian Lillard with a 60 spot for the Blazers, but it came in a loss. And Luke from Adelaide writes, Lillard is playing like the best guard in the league right now, and the rest of the Trailblazers team is wasting it. I just watched him drop 60 points and score over half of his team's points in a loss. As a diehard Blazers fan, it is upsetting to see Lillard in the best form of his life be supported by this well below average team. They need help, and I need help. What do the Blazers need to turn this early season slump around? How can I salvage this season if they don't? Can Damian Lillard win MVP if he keeps playing like this? Or should I focus on the bright future of Anthony Simons and Nasir Little? Please give me some advice. Now, Luke, I love that you mentioned the thing about how he scored uh, more than half of his team's points. This was something I used to always track, Rob, especially when I was younger. Can a player outscore all of his teammates combined? For some reason, that little statistical oddity always gets me excited. Um, and with some of these crazy uh, point totals we've seen from players, whether it's Lillard, Harden, you know, other guys in recent years, it does happen a little bit more often uh, than you would think. And, uh, you know, frankly, maybe I like it because it's pretty cool for the guy who's doing it. And it's so sad for all of his teammates. And <laughs> maybe I just like the, the duality of experiences there. But uh, Luke needs advice uh, all the way in Adelaide, Australia. What's your advice for him? I mean, I would say to give it time for two reasons. One, Portland is no stranger to slow starts in general. This has kind of been part of this team's MO in recent years, is that they do tend to pick things up as the year goes along. And you could try to you know trace the causality of that to any number of things. But with this particular team, and we've talked about this before, Ben, they don't have a lot of that continuity. They really are you know, starting fresh with a lot of the rotation and now dealing with injuries on top of it. They just don't have a lot of viable forwards in general. And so if you want to address that via trade, you know, we've talked about the possibility of them trading for Kevin Love or Danilo Gallinari. That's an option. If you want to look at kind of, you know, lower rent, more rotation level forwards, you could plug in there. That could be an option down the line. They really do need some rotation help in that regard. But I do think over the course of the year, given time, some of these issues will clear up, but that's not going to make Hassan Whiteside a better screen setter all of a sudden. You know, like there's still going to be some fundamental things that are wrong with this roster that just don't quite work. Yeah, I mean, I really hate to pile on because it sounds like he's really going through it right now. But to me, this all kind of goes back to Whiteside. He was the centerpiece of their offseason plan, right? You're trading out multiple players uh, to acquire him. You're hoping that he can hold down the fort until Nurkic gets back. And then you're because of the, the players that you parted with from a, a cost standpoint and that trade standpoint, you're filling in the gaps with lesser talents. I just think they downgraded at multiple positions, especially with Whiteside. Um, he gets these popcorn stats that are just absolutely meaningless. He got called out pretty hard last week by TNT guys, you know, Shaquille O'Neal and Charles Barkley uh, for his effort level. I thought those comments were completely warranted. Afterwards, you know, Whiteside kind of shot back at, at Shaq and said, look, man, you know, you're not one to talk. Damian Lillard killed you in a rap battle. You know, that's a funny line, but you know what's more productive? Uh, going out there and playing any level of defense that just doesn't involve chasing block shots. Uh, you know, like you're saying, setting screens on offense, moving hard, cutting hard, you know, sticking to good shot selection. This guy takes some of just the wackiest, you know, little like hooks and runner shots from like six to eight feet that have absolutely no chance of going in. He regularly misses shots that just like don't even hit the rim. Um, and, you know, he seems like a nice enough guy, like, you know, talking to him after the game or, you know, he was doing his post-game press conference. Um, you know, he, he seemed, uh, you know, he came off you know pretty humble, like he's still trying to get adjusted. I just think they bet on the wrong guy. And I think, unfortunately, that's really going to cost them this season. Their best hope is to try to repackage him in trade. But I think most smart GMs realize he's not a positive trade asset as a player. At this point, he's just like the expiring contract. And you'd have to throw something else in really good uh, to get teams excited about dealing for him. So I think they're in a little bit of a pinch. I think the other uh, factor, though, that could help save this thing from Portland's standpoint is just C.J. McCollum you know, getting back to who he is. I think he's had a slow start. I think it's common, you know, in a 10 game sample to just assume that the sky is falling with a player, uh, you know, if he just can't hit, you know, hit his normal shots, he's not delivering at his usual percentages uh, or whatever else. CJ McCollum can play better. He's got a long track record of it. He's in his prime. Uh, he has a fit with Damian Lillard. Uh, so to me, I think that's where their kind of salvation is going to come from. But uh, 
Portland just kind of looks like a bubble team to me. You know, I, as amazing as Damian has played, I think he deserves some of that MVP buzz. I do think he's got a very strong case as being the best guard in the league, uh, as the emailer said. Um, the help just really isn't there. I didn't like their bench depth. It's already been tested with some injury issues. Uh, so to me, if they wind up missing the playoffs, which a number of people kind of forecast before the season, uh, I'm already starting to rationalize that. And I'm already starting to kind of prepare myself for that uh, as a viewer. And I think, Luke, that's probably the healthiest approach for you too. Well, that's the tough thing too, is if they are a bubble team, they're getting there by Damian Lillard doing superhuman shit. Like that he's having to score this much and carry this much and they're still just getting kind of into bubble range. It's it's certainly a pretty dire place to start your season. Now we've got another question about another high-level point guard, uh, or at least a high-level point guard of the future. Tanner writes, this is 1,000% biased because I went to Murray State. It's also way too early in the season, but how do you see John Morant's odds to win Rookie of the Year? He is currently leading all rookies in points and assists, playing on limited minutes. The way he has been sharing the ball and trying to work in his teammates shows that he is playing with a purpose, which is the most important stat. Tanner, way to butter me up, bringing back an, an, a classic uh, oldie but goodie with playing with a purpose. Um, Rob, what are your first impressions of John Moran? I know some people are a little frustrated with how they're managing his minutes, not running up his tally, you know, giving him nights off here and there. Um, does that kind of stuff bother you, or do you think what he's doing in those minutes is the real story? I think it's the latter, and he, he's just looked really poised to me. And, you know, I didn't get a chance to see him a lot in college. A lot of this is new in terms of the exposure to his game. But he's been super productive, obviously. He's shooting incredibly well, especially, you know, first-year guard to come out of the gate and shoot well from the field is extremely difficult. So credit to him there. But more so it's just the way he's navigating defenses, the way he's navigating crunch time situations when, you know, the Grizzlies obviously don't have a ton of those. But when they do arise, kind of the meaningful possessions of a game I think he's a lot more balanced than based on kind of the archetype of the scoring guard coming into the league than I would have been led to expect by that. So he's been, I mean, incredibly fun to watch, obviously, from an athletic perspective, just a a really standout prospect there. But his judgment for a rookie, I think, is what makes him such an impressive prospect. Yeah, there's no doubt. He's got a great basketball mind. The athleticism stuff is crazy. I mean, I think he got comped to Derrick Rose, you know, during high school or uh, maybe, you know, during his year at college. I could see a lot of that. I mean, it's that torpedo type explosion off the off the hardwood when he's going towards the basket that is just so rare. I actually am totally in favor of what Memphis is doing by managing his minutes. Uh, it's something that I had talked about coming into this season. Look, if you're going to win fewer than 20 games, the worst thing you can do is start the odometer early from an injury standpoint. And, you know, he's putting a lot of stress on his legs, right? So taking it, gra- you know, having a gradual introduction to the NBA, to me, it's it's a pretty smart approach, um, especially when you just saw last year what can happen if a, a player like Jaron Jackson Jr. goes down halfway through the season and you lose multiple months of development because, uh, you know, that happens. So slow and steady wins the race with him. Uh, I love his in-between game or, or where he's trying to go with that. You know, I think it's going to be a real weapon for him as he goes forward. He likes the floaters. He goes to his left. He goes to his right. He, he likes to pull up the teardrops. Uh, I think all of those things are going to wind up as he fills out physically and as he gets a reputation in the league. I think he's going to be drawing a lot of fouls. I think he's just going to live at the free throw line with his particular style of play. And that will give him a nice balance because as we've seen, you know, point guards at that position, it's not necessarily going to be a highlight real night, night after night after night after night, right? You're going to get punished. You're going to get beat up a little bit. Uh, you know, teams are going to play you for the drive, force you to beat them with the shot. And I just think he has enough counters and enough just shiftiness off the dribble and, and smooth, creative, you know, stop and start moves, all that stuff to get himself into really advantageous situations to break down defenses. And then also, you know, once you get into the paint to find the right guy, the open man. So I remain incredibly high on him. I think he's got a chance for rookie of the year. Uh, I think that's one race, though, to me, we need to see it, you know, shake out a little bit. I'm not sure we can, uh, you know, really necessarily prognosticate it uh, at this point of the season, but he should be there, um, you know, just because he was the number two pick. He's going to have some numbers. Uh, He's going to have the highlight reels and the buzz. And I think he's just a very enjoyable personality, Everyone who I've kind of come across with him has nothing but positive things to say about him, whether that's with the Grizzlies, 
you know, or just, you know, fellow reporters around the league. And, uh, you know, sometimes in awards voting, that counts for something, too. Well, I, I think it helps, too, that the Grizzlies have been, especially for one of the worst teams in the league from a talent perspective. You know, they have, you know, some talented young players, but they're very young. And Jaron Jackson has been kind of awful to start this season. He's had a lot of trouble just staying on the floor with foul trouble. Uh, and even in spite of that, they've looked kind of surprisingly functional whenever John Moran is on the floor. And I think that he deserves a lot of credit for coming out of the gate and already being that kind of influence on the team. Yeah, that's something I've thought here over these last couple of years. You know, one benefit of this pace and space era is that like if you're a proven ball handler creator at the college level and in the high school level and you're doing it at a, a pretty high level, I think that transition now for those types of players is easier than it's ever been. You know, guys are hitting the league uh, or hitting the ground running in the league more quickly uh, than we've seen, you know, even five, six, seven, eight years ago. I mean, it used to be this thing that we would always just talk about like, oh, rookie point guard. Oh, they're really going to have to like slowly work him in. And I think just they have more room to operate. Uh, you know, the, the the physicality defensively isn't quite what it was. Uh, obviously, no hand checking helps. Um, but even just, you know, the, the lineup styles where you're having, you know, three, four shooters on the court at all times, more teams are playing five out. I just think it makes it so much easier for like the Trey Youngs, the John Morants of the world to acclimate and to put up really good numbers right off the bat. Um, you know, it helps that scoring is up and pace is up and, you know, it's not as defensive minded of a game. So it kind of plays those types of players strengths. But I think the years where you needed like three years to, to, uh, learn on the job. Like I think th those times are done. We've got a question from Adam. He writes, I want to start with a caveat. This is not a request for generic praise. Very good caveat, Adam. Then he asks, are we all sleeping on Gordon Hayward? I'm knowing I'm, I'm, I know I'm writing this on the back of a 39 point explosion on 17 for 20 shooting from the field. And it was only against the Cavaliers, but his early season numbers are looking like being back to the level of a guy who was an all-star level player before he came to Boston. Then about a week later, Adam follows up and says, well, this is awkward. While we obviously don't wish injury on any player, if there's anyone else you'd like me to curse besides Gordon Hayward, I'd be glad to do it. Okay, Adam, don't beat yourself up here. This was not your fault. Uh, and I think that his original question was right on the money, Rob. I mean, I think Gordon Hayward was looking really good to start the season. Yeah, I think his whole disposition had changed. You could see that kind of shift where it's hard to pinpoint when it happens for every player in terms of when they start to feel really comfortable in their body again after coming back from a major injury, and usually a major leg injury or knee injury or foot injury of some kind. And I think we saw Hayward turn that corner, where he felt comfortable as a driver, felt comfortable going hard and, and really pushing off and stepping back off that injury, you know, previously injured leg. It really is a shame to see him go out under these circumstances. The Celtics have been kind of unbelievably good, given the state of their center rotation, some of the injuries they've been dealing with, and obviously the questions defensively, you know, losing Al Horford over the summer, but they'd been so good, and Hayward was such a huge part of that. Yeah, I'm wondering, do you think this injury is really that big of a deal for them? Because I look at this Eastern Conference, and like, surprise, surprise, I'm not impressed at all, right? I, it's not a deep conference. Uh, you know, some of these teams that are like in the mix for like six, seven, eight, I don't think are very good. Isn't there enough time here for Boston to sort of hold down the fort, uh, you know, wait for Hayward to come back? It's not the crazy most serious injury, and they'll still be in a pretty solid playoff position, and they'll still be kind of who they were on track to be before the injury. Like, to me, I just view this like totally different than, this, than the Steph Curry situation where, okay, they're both breaking their hand, but for Golden State, that's like the straw that broke the camel's back. We can write them off forevermore. With Hayward, it's like a really crummy – uh, you know, piece of bad luck, especially coming off you know the injury a couple of years ago, and I understand he's undergoing surgery on, to to repair the hand um, on Monday, according to reports. I think they're going to be fine, you know. And I would love to dance in the Celtics' grave. I mean, nothing makes me happier, honestly, than uh, you know writing the Celtics off into oblivion. But they've totally exceeded my expectations this season, and I think that the Hayward injury, while a bummer, will not really change their trajectory in any meaningful way. Well, I do think it kind of recontextualizes what they could do. Because if you look at the way they started, how successful they've been right out of the gate, you know, 
you could have seen them, you know, still having the number one seed going into the all-star break or late in the season. You know, it's one of those things where if they had been able to get a certain kind of momentum early and sell themselves in a way on, okay, maybe we really are this good. You know, we thought we were a good team. We thought maybe we could, you know, make some noise in the playoffs, challenge, you know, Philadelphia and Milwaukee a little bit, push them. But if, if you're able to kind of come out that strong, I think it sends a different message within your organization and you know to the rest of the league as well in terms of the credibility and how seriously you should be taken. And so that's the thing that you know we won't really get to see is what you know what is a full strength full steam Celtics team look like going into January and February having been able to build from all of this. But I don't think there's any question that this is too competent a team, too deep a team to really kind of, you know, have the bottom fall out as a result of this injury. It's just a shame we won't get to see that kind of counterfactual reality where they have everything going for them. Yeah, for sure. And let me just be really honest before the Celtics fans get excited that I'm like hopping over to their side. Look, cute story with Hayward, cute story without Hayward. That's all I'm saying. All right. I don't think these guys are making uh, crazy noise in the postseason. Um, but like I said, they, they've definitely exceeded expectations. And for him, you love that comeback story, you know, because I think when that initial leg injury happened, I just kind of mentally wrote him off for 18 months. I don't think I was that hard on him last year when he struggled. I mean, to me, he entered the playoffs as their X factor. And that was just a tricky spot to be in when you're relying so heavily on a player coming off an injury or still working through his rehabilitation to kind of be the guy who puts you over the top. And I just didn't think he was up for it, you know, at that point. Um, but everything you're saying about the different disposition, you know, I, I think that's spot on. And uh, hopefully he hits the ground running here once he gets back. All right, we've got another question from Dan, and he's following up on our conversation about load management. He writes, Ben, don't forget about the fans' perspective. You have incredible and enviable access and ability to be up close and personal to endless NBA experiences that most fans don't have. Dan, Points very well taken. Trust me, I do not ever take it for granted. I was pinching myself in Los Angeles last week when it was Giannis on Wednesday, Dame Lillard on Thursday, uh, Jimmy Butler on Friday, Siakam on Sunday, and then mixed in between, just sprinkled for good measure, were Kawhi Leonard, LeBron James, and Anthony Davis. I promise you, I don't lose sight of that, Dan. Uh, but then he writes, many fans only get a chance or have the money to go to a couple or a few games a year. I went to four Celtics games last year, and Kyrie, one of the most electrifying players in the history of the game, only played in one of those four games. I'm paying tons of money to see guys like Kawhi, Giannis, Curry, Harden, LeBron, Anthony Davis, Luka, Porzingis uh, come to play. And Ben, you know how much it sucked when Zion Williamson was uh, you know, hurt in those games that you saw. That's how I feel when I pay money for these players, and they don't play because of injury or because of load management. So, Dan, look, I haven't forgotten about the fan perspective here, but I do think that we are deep enough into the load management era where this line of argument of, you know, don't forget about the fan, don't forget about the kid who traveled hundreds of miles to come see his favorite uh, player play. I don't think those guilt trips apply anymore, man. I understand what you're saying. I completely empathize with, you know, scheduling issues and, and financial issues 100%. But I think we're in an era now where it's buyer beware. This has been going on for five, six, seven years since the Spurs kind of started pioneering this approach of resting guys. And I just no longer think it's safe to assume you're going to get to see the guys you want to play. Now, in the specific case of Kawhi Leonard with the Clippers, don't buy a ticket to watch him on a back-to-back. He's not going to play on the back-to-backs. We know this. He's going to play one of the two games. He's not going to play both. If you can't determine ahead of time which game he might sit out, don't spend the premium price on the tickets to go to that game. It's just foolish. And and I think the responsibility for that does not fall on the superstar players. It falls on the fans too. And also remember this, the whole point of load management, right? It's to maximize a player for the playoffs and also to extend his career. So realize it's not just about that one Tuesday that you want to go to as a fan to see him play because it's convenient for his schedule. It's about the greater good of trying to make sure Kawhi Leonard can play maybe two or three extra seasons uh, at the end of his career so that he's still able to contribute to wins and so that other fans out there are able to see him too. I would just say, you know, for every fan who's upset, uh, you know, take a step back, understand that you're not just paying to see one guy Uh, Be smart with which games you go to, uh, you know, be as creative and as forward thinking as possible when you're looking at the schedule to kind of pick games uh, where you're going to be able to see the guy that you really want to see. And then, you know, don't go home disappointed in a horrible mood 
uh, if the whole night is ruined. And your example about Zion is actually great, Dan. The trip to Duke, North Carolina, to watch that game in Cameron was one of the most memorable basketball viewing experiences of my life, period. I was so crushed and disappointed when Zion went out early. The rest of the game, watching how the crowd reacted, getting all the glitter and the face paint all over my body from the fans who are leaning over me as I'm trying to sit there courtside watching the game, seeing Obama uh, courtside just eating up the whole atmosphere, watching uh, Coach K, Roy Williams kind of go head-to-head, lots of NBA talent on the court, trying to decide why is it North Carolina keeping uh, Nasir Little in the game in the closing minutes. He's supposed to be this big-time college prospect. There was just a lot going on in that game. I loved it. It was not ruined uh, by Zion's absence. Although, of course, you know, a few Zion haymaker dunks would have made it that much better. Rob, I think I went on for like six <laughs> straight minutes there. Did I miss anything on this point that you'd want to chime in on? No, I think that was very well said, especially that, you know, any basketball game is always going to be more than any one player, even a superstar, even a Zion or a Kawhi or whoever it is. There's always so much more going on and so much more that you can watch and enjoy and take part in, just especially being there live at, you know, for a game experience. But ultimately, I mean, I think what's so frustrating to me about this conversation is that it seems like a non-unique problem to me because players miss games all the time due to injury. If you show up for a random game for any superstars team there's a chance they're going to be out with knee tendinitis or whatever it is and so you know with Kawhi, you have a player who has a chronic issue with his quad and so you can either approach that with preventative care by sitting out back-to-backs or you can eventually just have him miss games due to actual pain and jeopardize your team season in the process and so he's going to miss games every player is going to miss games over the course of their career you can't always pick and choose which ones they are but you can try to get ahead of the curve a little bit like the clippers have done and that's going to look different for everyone for every star for every player's body this is just what it looks like for Kawhi. very well said hey rob i wanted to uh you know shift gears into a different direction that we don't normally go on this show because i did not mention it at the top but you have actually accepted a, a job with The Ringer uh, to be an NBA writer over there after seven years at Sports Illustrated. You and I uh, both went to Sports Illustrated together. I believe it was the fall of 2012, uh, stepping into the you know the big shoes uh, left by Zach Lowe at the Point Forward uh, NBA blog, you know, rest in peace. And so, Rob, I mean, over that time period, I mean, seven years is no joke. I mean, there's a lot of projects, a lot of season preview magazines, a lot of top 100s, a lot of profiles, a lot of analysis pieces, injury reactions, trade grades. I mean, I'm sure, uh, you know, you've got hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of bylines over that time period. But I just, you know, I don't know how you get in these situations, but I tend to get a little reflective. And I'm just curious, uh, what do you really remember uh, the most or what's going to stick with you most about your seven years at Sports Illustrated uh, now that it's about to come to an end? I mean, there's a lot, Um, you know, and some of it is small things. Some of it is little details from reporting stories. It's, you know, when I was living in in Chicago, just kind of zigzagging across the Midwest, trying to, you know, drive in through through the winters, trying to get interviews for this or that, and especially for Breakaway, which is, you know, my podcast that we were trying to get off the ground at the time, trying to scrape together all that. Sometimes it's bigger things, you know, like you're saying, the the season preview magazine stories and and that kind of thing. But it's always hard to look back. I don't know if you feel this way, Ben, but for me it is in terms of looking back at your work. There's just a lot of baggage that comes with writing any story. Um, It can be kind of excruciating to read something that you wrote years ago and you focus so much on what you would have done differently it makes the whole thing kind of a miserable experience sometimes, and you you fret over these small details, but you do feel proud of the work of, you know, this one little detail you got, of this one little turn of phrase you feel like you got right, or maybe some sometimes it's the fact that a story came together at all if it was kind of on the ropes there, and so there are so many of those little instances over seven years that that stick out to me, and a lot of things that I'm proud to have written, even if I'm not necessarily proud of every word and the way it came together. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. I mean, like when I left SI last year uh, for the post, uh, the timing just worked out weird where like I basically ended at SI then I went to Yosemite for like five days and just got completely lost in the Yosemite sauce because you know how I feel about Yosemite. I mean, one sure. of na- nature's great bounties. And then I came back and was like immediately plunged into like doing HR paperwork for the new job. So I really didn't get the time to reflect on the SI experience at all. And going back and reading old stuff, absolutely 
is excruciating, you know, that you want to change your lead. You want to like, you know, I worded this poorly. Oh man, this analysis was like totally off. Uh, but at the same time, what, what are you probably most proud of uh, when you think back on those seven years? I mean, was it the breakaway podcast that you mentioned uh, where you're doing these long form interviews with players? Was there one particular story you wrote or interview you did for that podcast that maybe you kind of hold up as uh, as your, you know, shiny object it's hard to pick one and some of it's to you know it's what i was talking about where you kind of no, love you pick kind of one <laughs> pick one rob you kind of love them all and hate them all in a sense um i think in terms of the stuff with breakaway there were a couple episodes that really stood out you know talking to ron adams about kind of the connectedness of defense and it was kind of at a weird time you know this was like right after the 2016 election so there's something kind of very heartening about hearing him talk about the way that human beings interact with each other kind of intellectually and spiritually there was a really cool interview at that kind of at that particular minute uh damian lillard i thought was incredible for breakaway but the, i mean there were there were a lot of great interviews and a lot of great players and coaches who were nice enough to give me their time over the years and and, and ultimately i think resulted in some pretty some pretty decent stories, some pretty some stories that really came together in a way that I was proud of. You know, being able to kind of sit down with Dirk Nowitzki and go through his career with him, beat for beat, and learn kind of how he built his game in response to a series of failures. And you know, we go through this long interview, and then I try to wrap up with him, and it's just kind of like, oh, is that all you got? And we just kind of sat there and kept going over and over and over and over again. He was incredibly generous with his time, especially going over some pretty painful memories, but. You know, from that to, you know, trying to wrap my head around Russell Westbrook now for a couple of season preview issues to, you know, always remember a story I wrote about Mike Conley when he broke his face in the, I want to say it was the 2016 playoffs um, and kind of the 72 hours or so immediately after that injury and him having to take pain medicine that was so strong it would make him vomit, but his jaw was wired shut and it's just this excruciating, miserable experience for him. There's always those kinds of things that stick with you or, you know, I wrote a story where I tried to kind of understand the game and see the game through Chris Paul's eyes and, you know, how frustrating it would be and how freeing it would be to see the game with that level of nuance and detail. And so there's so many things. There's so many things to be proud of over the course of any career, so many relationships with other writers, with editors, you know, working on Top 100 with you every year was always a treat. And also maybe when I bang my head against the wall from, you know, the the level of detail and just how granular we would get through that process. But it's it's been an unbelievable ride. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I remember that Conley story. I mean, the Mike D'Antoni breakaway episode, too, to me, was, like, off the charts. Thank you. Um, uh, yeah, I'm wondering, though, like, if you look back during that seven-year period, was there one game um, that you covered or that you wrote about? I always have trouble with this one because, like, I mean, the Clay Thompson game in OKC is way up there. The cramp game with LeBron in the finals in San Antonio was just such a wild scene. Uh, J.R. Smith's blunder. You know, you got to throw into that mix. Um, you know, there's been others too. I mean, just you know, spectacular individual performances. Uh, you know, for me, like you know, coming where I did, like Kevin Durant, uh, draft Kevin Durant's like how I get my start to watch him win his first title and play so well in those finals uh, was kind of an incredible f- full circle moment. Do you have one game uh, that that you look back on where you kind of pinch yourself and you're like, man, I can't believe I was th- I was there. I'll remember writing about this or or being there for the rest of my life. It's definitely one that you already mentioned, which is that Clay Thompson game six in OKC, which we got to cover together. Nice. Something that, you know, doesn't happen a lot when you're on the same staff necessarily, especially a staff like ours, where, you know, you'll be sent to one city and I'll be sent to another city. And, you know, hopefully as the as the playoffs go on into the conference finals and the finals, we're kind of in the same places at the same time. That was one of those games where you get, you know, as it's happening, it's just you know, the crowd there is unbelievable in OKC, the environment, the stakes of that game are obviously so high. You get through it, you're kind of flabbergasted as it's happening. Then you try to, you know, scrape, you know, you do your media availability, you, you know, get your interviews in, you try to get, you know, the best stuff you can, you write something and you try to make it coherent. And then you finally sit back. I think we, you and I may have even done a pod that day or the next day. Uh, but it's just, you just are hit with this wave of like, what the hell just happened? Like, how does a guy like Clay just hit an increasingly improbable series of threes like that. I think he ended up with 11 threes in that game. 
it's one of those that you'll always remember just because it, it was so bewildering. And because at the time, obviously, it was a game with massive implications in the moment, but massive implications for the league and the state of it, given what became of the Thunder and Durant as a result of that series. Yeah, I mean, arguably the defining game of the decade, right? I mean, the, the way that everything played out kind of from there going forward. It was such an interesting test case for like Golden State's just assumed invincibility, right? Like it was finally actually like put to the test and what do you know they still found a way to be invincible um we did that podcast at the oklahoma city airport marriott <laughs> that's right <laughs> or a, no the courtyard marriott uh just to make it even more bleak um in a conference room that had weird echoing i remember uh that's another thing similar to riding rob going back and listening to old podcasts is, is kind of tough too um so just you know be forewarned if you're getting nostalgic like don't try to go look that podcast up you're it's going to be like uh you know, nails on a chalkboard. That game was crazy. Um, how about least favorites? Uh, do you have anything that, you know, kind of stuck in your, your uh, you know, grinding your gears after all these years? Any moments that you, you regret, whether you, you wrote something and it just turned out wrong? You know, I'm kind of picturing the, the Lee Jenkins cover that's always hung over him a little bit, that now this is going to be fun, where he, you know, it's just like you, you cringe when you see it because – uh, you know, the pitch of the story just didn't match the reality. And you, of course, as a writer or as an analyst, don't have a, a ton of control over that. Anything you want back, Rob? Any regrets? There aren't a lot. And s some of it is just, you know, you go on runs where, you know, the pieces aren't quite coming together the way you want. There was certainly a year in there where I felt like every time I interviewed a player, he had a massive season-ending injury within like two weeks of me talking to him. And I started feeling a little guilty about that. But once you kind of square it in your mind as being a little bit beyond your control, there aren't that many things that, you know, least favorite memories or big regrets or anything like that. I mean, there, there are those days where you're kind of like, you know, you're sick and you have to pull it all together to, you know, to, to make your piece work or something like that. But or those days where even when you're kind of in the trenches a little bit, whether it's you and I doing top 100 or it's just one of those like free agency frenzies, whatever it is, those can be kind of miserable in their own way. But there's there's something to being in that with the rest of your staff, with the other editors, with the other writers, with you and I claiming, you know, our sixth free agent signing in a row when all of these have just been popping off and trying to understand them and, you know, analyze them. I, I mean, maybe my one regret is that you and I never got to do like a, a top 100 cabin trip or something like retreat into the wilderness and come out with this ridiculous manuscript at the end of it. I always thought that would be a fun time. No, that would have been. I mean, that that is a major regret. Now that you're mentioning it, I mean that that made my heart hurt when you just said that. I was like, <laughs> oh, 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 boy. Um, yeah, I totally know what you mean about the players getting injured after you write about them. The worst one for me was Larry Sanders because I wrote a pretty glowing like Larry Sanders story that was like way too long, three thousand words. I mean, just classic like talked to him for an hour and just wanted to use everything, so it didn't do a very good job of distilling it and just threw it all in there together. And then he basically like announced his retirement like a week and a half later. Oh, no. <laughs> that one was a tough blow. I mean, obviously there was things going on sort of off the court, you know, from his mentality standpoint and what his priorities were and, and some substance abuse issues, I believe, at that point of his life. Uh, and he had hinted at some of those things in our conversation. But certainly when I filed it, I wasn't like, hmm, maybe I should be bracing for the end of his career at like age 24. You know, <laughs> uh, needless to say, that one was a, a misfire. Um, how about yourself, Rob? How have you changed since 2012? You know, seven years doing this. Uh, like I said, hundreds of stories. You know, what do you remember about yourself, the person, when you first got to SI? Uh, I remember Brad Weinstein, uh, then NBA editor uh, at uh, SI, asking me at some point, like, hey, who do you want to work with? And the first name that came to mind was you. I think uh, I was just a big fan of your writing, and it was not too far removed from that 2011 Mavericks title run. I think you had a, a lot of nice profile and uh, a lot of good attention you know, during that time period. Um, and you just seemed like a young, hungry guy who I, I could view as like a kindred spirit. Um, what was your side of that story? We've never talked about this, so it's great radio. You're going to surprise me with uh, with with your perspective. Well, I didn't know about that part. I didn't I didn't know I had been called out by name, but I I mean I have a lot to thank you for in doing that. I remember you know kind of having my own independent interview process. I mean they certainly never asked me who I wanted to work with, so maybe I was the sidekick in this all along. But 
it, it's crazy to think how different we were then as writers, both you and I, and and how different our jobs were coming into SI versus what we do now. I mean, we're definitely more in the blogging game then, doing a little bit more aggregation, a little bit more link collecting, and certainly there was you know a lot of heavy analysis and commentary and column type work in there too, but it was just a different pace to what SI was doing and to where the internet was, and it had really different requirements as a result of that. And I, I would like to think that since then, I've learned a lot in terms of you know, constructing my writing more thoughtfully in terms of piecing things together in a more humanistic way and kind of understanding and trying to empathize with the subjects a little bit more. I think there's a lot you can learn from NBA players across the board from obviously from a basketball sense, these guys and the coaches and the executives know a lot more than we do about the world that they traverse in. But just as, as people, as people who are overcoming obstacles, as people who have had to deal with so much, who are in difficult, fraught personal situations, I would hope that I've learned a lot from that, and I think that I have. And a lot of that is a tribute to the opportunities that a company like SI puts you in. And that, that work, you know, reading you and reading Lee Jenkins and reading Chris Ballard and having a chance to, to work alongside you guys and see you guys work, it, I mean, that's what makes you a better writer. That's what, that's what really has kind of made this the opportunity of a lifetime. And it's one of those things that you never get that time back, uh, but you, you always remember it. No, that's what I remember about 2012, just being like, wow, this seems like the coolest incubator ever. Like Lee Jenkins isn't just going to be a byline. He's going to be like someone I'm on email exchanges with. Like, this is wild. Like, I'm, I'm like, what am I doing here? You know, you kind of get that like impo- that imposter syndrome a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it was a gradual progression, like you're describing kind of year after year, sort of things, you know, shift a little bit. Certain people stay, some people leave. Now your, your roles and responsibilities changes. We're trying to keep up with how social media is going. So, uh, you know, just blasting out, you know, 10 posts a day isn't necessarily the goal anymore. Now we're trying to do things that have a chance to, you know, maybe have a bigger impact, uh, getting away from game stories. You know, I remember when we started, you know, it was a lot of game stories. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, by the end of it, you know, there's practically none. Um, a lot changed over those seven years. Uh, are you leaving? How are you leaving? Fulfilled, happy, excited. Uh, what's your what's your mood? I'm pretty fulfilled, and I think it's, you know, seeing this through with you and you already having changed jobs, and it, it does feel like a changing of the guard in a lot of ways. Where you know where SI is as a company, where our staff is, where you know a lot of the guys that you know our, our staff has turned over a lot in that time, as you mentioned, not only changing our, our various responsibilities at given points, but opening up different ones for us and, and giving us room to grow. And it's one of those things where I, I am ready to to experience something new and to have different kinds of challenges and, and learn from different people. And I think that's kind of what I'm excited about most at The Ringer. I think it's going to be a great spot for me to continue growing, hopefully. But SI was great for me in that regard. It was it was a place where I could learn and grow a lot as a writer. And I hope that showed in the work. It certainly uh, improved my experience as I went. And I, I had a great time there. But I, I do think it's it's that time, and I do think that does speak to a level of, of comfort and fulfillment in the work that we were able to do. For sure. Uh, the last thing I want to say to you on this, and then we're going to call it a, a show, but Rob, I cannot thank you enough here over the last couple of weeks for stepping up uh, as a co-host. I mean, that's just a huge time burden. It is a huge mental burden in terms of getting yourself in the mentality to uh, you know craft takes, come up with ideas. Uh, you know, spar intellectually with a really aggravating co-host myself. <laughs> um, that is no small, uh, just, you know, thing to pile on your shoulders and to do it with, you know, very little warning and kind of at a moment's notice and, and to just kind of say yes reflexively. I think it kind of reflects who you were to me uh, at SI the whole run. Uh, I think I tweeted something along the lines of, you know, you never came up short on any project that we worked on in seven years. And that's true. I mean, you just delivered above and beyond, and I think it's so exciting that you're moving on, uh, you know, to a different, uh, you know, different company, new position, uh, and that you're going to be continuing to writing stuff, you know, write stuff. I can't wait to read it, um, and just, you know, from me to you, a very, very sincere thank you. Well, it's been a blast, and I mean, for me, there really is no better way to end my run at SI than here. You know, talking with you after all that we kind of started and shared together over the course of these years. I mean, thank you for that. I'm glad you're still standing, Rob, because some people <laughs> I wear down, you know, seven years with me. That's a lot, Rob. That's true. Uh, not, every, not everybody survives. All right. 
Uh, guys, you can find us on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find the page, scroll down. It will say rate and review. Tab five stars. It's just that easy. I'm on Instagram at ben.goliver. And of course, you can email us like everybody did on today's uh, episode with just great questions and, and uh, observations. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. We couldn't even get through all the questions we got this week. So we appreciate you guys for continue, continuing to be invested uh, in this show. Hey, Rob, until later this week, I will talk to you. Later, Ben.